a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock. I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're looking at Russia's future and the threat of war with Ukraine. Now, there have been a few high-level talks this week. Uh, Where has that left things? Unfortunately, there's still left things in the air. So we've had a, a meeting this week, the most important one being between NATO and Russia. The Ukrainians have complained because they weren't at the meeting. They're not a member of NATO and they uh, obviously are not absorbed within the Russian Empire. So they were absent from the meeting, but the meeting was very much to discuss them. So um, it's interesting because, you know, elsewhere in society, we have the slogan, nothing about us without us. Well, unfortunately, it was without the Ukrainians. Um, So we've got a flashpoint now in Ukraine. Material that I've been reading is by Peter Zian, uh, who's a very good commentator and is actually a little more optimistic about America's future than a lot of other commentators. And he's certainly very pessimistic about Russia's future. So the background to this is that, well, let's go back eight years. Eight years ago, the Russians took over Crimea. So Crimea was part of Ukraine. The Russians um, took control over it and then it was handed back in in what's thought to be a sort of a drunken fit by the then Soviet leader, Premier Khrushchev. And then eight years ago, Putin decided to take it back again. (laughs) So the Crimea consists of a lot of Russians, given the history. So for the last eight years, we've had a flashpoint over uh, the future of Crimea and the wider context of Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the biggest countries in Eastern Europe and potentially very rich. Uh, it was In the old days, it was called the breadbasket of Eastern Europe because they grew so much grain there. So eight years ago, the Russians took it back fearing that Ukraine would be joining NATO and that NATO, rather than Russia, would have control of the Russian bases in Crimea. So the Russians said, well... If that's going to happen, we're going to take Crimea back. That way we preserve our bases in Crimea. And so for the last eight years, there's been this tussle between Western countries, including Ukraine and Russia. Um, There have been some sanctions against the Russians. Uh, There are also sanctions for other reasons. They've got a habit of killing uh, opponents of Mr. Putin overseas. So they've been punishing the Russians also for that reason. And then in the last few weeks, we've had the Russians upping the ante by moving a a large force, perhaps 150,000 troops, right up onto the border with Ukraine. And the fear is that Russia will invade the rest of Ukraine. They've taken over already Crimea. The eastern part of Ukraine is effectively occupied by pro-Russian separatists. Ukraine, as I say, is a large country. The eastern part of it is very Russian-dominated, and the Western part of it is much more linked into the European civilization. And so the Russians have already got Crimea. They've got a bit of um, eastern Ukraine. And the question is, are they now going to move over the Russian border and try to, well, will they have a a tank attack on Kiev, the capital city? 
of Ukraine. I think it'll be stupid for Putin to do that. But just because something is stupid, it doesn't mean the politicians won't mm. do it. That's <laughs> that's true. our problem. So why is Russia so against NATO's expansion? Because much of this is about that expansion. That is exactly the issue. So, uh, and this goes all the way back um, to uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was in uh, 1991. So uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. You may remember the Berlin Wall had come down, etc. And there's a question about Russian forces remaining in Eastern Germany. So under the World War II Treaty, uh, the Russians occupied East Germany and the British, French and Americans occupied various sectors of West Germany and, of course, the same for Berlin. And you would have seen some of those movies with, you know, what's going on in Berlin and the Berlin Wall and all the rest of it. So all of that came down in '91. Meanwhile, there was still this existing treaty permitting the Soviet Union to occupy East Germany. And the agreement was that the the Russians under Mikhail Gorbachev would pull out of East Germany and the quid pro quo is that NATO would not move further east than where it was at the end of the Cold War. And George Bush Sr. negotiated that arrangement with um, uh, Premier uh, uh, Gorbachev and honoured it for the rest of his time in office, but that was then um, violated by President Clinton, who decided to allow East Europeans to think about joining NATO, and that has been the trend. So the NATO border, the eastern border, has been moving further and further east towards Russia, and the Russians have got a paranoid obsession with people invading from the west. Hitler. Napoleon, there is an element to, to this, you know, you come across people who are paranoid, but sometimes they are justified in being paranoid. I don't think NATO would ever invade Russia, but deep down in that Russian psyche, there is this fear of invasion. And so that is the issue now, that NATO is moving further and further east. It has not said that it would accept Ukraine as a member, but there is this speculation that at some point, Ukraine will apply to join NATO and apply to join the European Union, locking it very much into that sort of Western European community of nations. And Putin has said that there should be a promise by NATO not to have Ukraine as a member. NATO this week has said, well, whether or not Ukraine is a member of NATO is due to Ukraine. Well, that's not quite correct because NATO still has the ability to say, we will not accept you as a member. So in fact, NATO could at least issue um, a statement saying, we will never accept the Ukrainians as a member of NATO. Um, And that, I think, would satisfy Putin. But in terms of the Ukraine as a country, you referenced the war in 2014. How has Ukraine changed and evolved? And what impact is that national identity having this time around? Is the situation different now to seven or eight years ago? Well, Peter Zeon is certainly saying, yes, that there is now a greater sense of national identity, partly because the more pro-Russian element is now, with its own separate existence, now very much linked to Russia. And there is a greater sense of national identity and greater determination. And so if you're speculating about whether the Russians would be foolish enough to invade Ukraine, then one of the issues would be that 
they'd be occupying a country which would be very anti-Russian. There may be still some pro-Russian sympathizers in Ukraine, but a lot of other ordinary Ukrainians within Ukraine would be opposed to that. And don't forget, there's also a Ukrainian diaspora, as they're called. In other words, Ukrainians who live overseas, including here in Australia. And so they would also be um, opposing Russia if the Russians were foolish enough to invade Ukraine. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannock, and Keith, today we're talking about Russia's future and the threat of war with Ukraine. Now, Washington is completely rejecting the key demands about Russia when it comes to NATO's expansion. So the US has told Russia it has a choice. Is this about security or is there some other pretext going on here? Well, the problem is that the US itself is somewhat divided. On the one hand, there is, I think, a feeling among some Americans that they would like to withdraw from a lot of world affairs. They're just exhausted. You know, they've they've had these inconclusive wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And do they really want to get bogged down in a fresh war in Europe? At the same time, you've got others in the United States, particularly those associated with the arms industry, who are saying, yes, let's dig our heels in. Let's have a confrontation. But it's risky for the United States because they're already speculating on a war against China. They can't fight a war war against China and Russia. There'd be two separate conflicts, um, and it would be very risky or foolish for the Americans to try to do that. Again, just because something is foolish doesn't mean that it wouldn't be done. But (laughs) (laughs) that's why I have very low opinion of some of our politicians. And there's also the risk of accidental warfare. People are being killed at the moment as we speak in eastern Ukraine. So from 2014 onwards and to today, there is trench warfare in eastern Ukraine uh, as the Ukrainians um, are resisting the Russian encroachment and people are getting shot. It's a very dangerous situation there. And in terms of Ukraine's military or or weaponry abilities since 2014, how has that changed um, in some part aided by the US? That's right. And the Americans have supplied anti-tank weapons. And of course, what is interesting, if the the Russians were to go um, into Ukraine, they'd be heading for Kiev, which is the obvious place. Um, So it'll be a tank battle. And the Ukrainians are now well armed with a new type of anti-tank weapon, which the Americans have developed. And I should imagine a lot of Americans just want to see how does it work. (laughs) Warfare is always the best way to test out new weapon systems. Um, And this would add to the apprehension for the Russians, knowing that they would come up against a very sophisticated anti-tank weapon. And they don't have that many tanks or human beings to lose in these conflicts. And this is one of the bigger pictures with Peter Zion's writing over the years. That He said that one of the real threats for the, the Soviet Union is that they're running out of people. So if you look around the world generally, we've, we've got a decline in population in a number of countries. And uh, leaving aside all the COVID stuff, uh, People are simply not having children. So we congratulate you, Sasha, for having children. You're, <laughs> you're doing the right thing. Um, 
But generally, a lot of other people are saying, no, we don't have children. We're going to go out and buy a new property, which is the attitude that Jane and I have. So you go out and buy properties. Uh, They're easier to handle than the the children. (laughs) This is true. So what we're seeing is that, you know, we've got this increase in wealth around the world and an increase in people saying, we want to stay rich. We don't want to be investing in children. And one of the most chronic examples of that is Russia. There's also a problem for China, by the way. You know, a lot of us speculate that China will grow old before it grows rich because they're running out of young workers as well. And the same thing is, is happening now within Russia. And Peter Zion made his name for himself years ago by looking at the demographics of Russia. And it is quite fascinating. In the article that we're looking at today, it's a very interesting diagram looking at the way in which there's almost a missing generation. Um, you've got young um, women who are missing from the, um, the, the what's called the, the pyramid. So people, very few people born in the 20s and 30s, which is rare because if you look at, say, Britain or Australia, we've, we've still got a number of people around who go back to the 20s and 30s. They're very old, but they're still around. Those have all gone in Russia. And you see... Uh, a lot of people, because World War II was largely fought within the Soviet Union against Germany. We have all these great Hollywood movies, but they distort the impression that we get in Australia. The war was fought once uh, Britain had had its finest hour. So that was May of 1940, June 41. Hitler gave up trying to invade Britain. And at that point, from June 41, which is the onset of Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, for three years until we get D-Day in June 44, in those three years, most of the fighting against the Germans was being done on Russian soil or in parts of Eastern Europe. And the Russians paid a terrible price in terms of the number of people who were killed. So... The Russians have got real demographic problems, which is what Peter Zion has written about over the years, saying that the future population situation in Russia is not good, that they're not having children, they're dying of despair and poverty. And so I guess from Putin's point of view, if he's going to be aggressive towards Ukraine, he better do it now because he's going to be presiding over a country in decline. So when you look at Putin and the demographics of Russia and his feelings about the borders, where does that leave Russia into the future? Well, Russia is is um, very good at putting up a brave front, but there are a lot of internal weaknesses for Mr. Putin. Not only is there a, a boiling point now within uh, within the Ukraine, but we've also had problems in the southern part of what used to be the old Soviet Union. These are the Islamic republics. So you've got a lot of tensions down there as well. And so Russia is also trying to sort of stabilise the southern side of Russia as well. Russia, even with the loss of that vast Soviet empire, Russia is still the largest landmass in the world. It's a huge landmass. It's 10 or 11 time zones wide, lots of resources. And Putin's great fear um, is that he's going to have difficulty trying to maintain the support of all these different nationalities, etc., so it, it's a terrible headache that Putin will have, which is why a number of us are saying that it'd be really foolish for him then to invade Ukraine, um, because if he were to do so, he'd be, well, perhaps creating an opportunity for an overthrow of his own government in Moscow. 
That's the risk that he runs. So he really ought to be consolidating power at home. But NATO can also help, in my view, by just simply saying, we will not accept Ukraine as a member. Uh, EU eventually can accept Ukraine as a member of the European Union, but that's purely trade. That's economic and social. The real issue which Putin worries about is NATO. And my hope would be that the NATO authorities would just simply say, we will not accept Ukraine as a member. And that would then reassure Putin. And that'll give Putin the opportunity then to get a lot of those forces currently deployed uh, on the border to be removed. Don't forget, it's the dead of winter at the moment. Mm. And they take their winters very seriously. I've been in that part of the world during winter. I can tell you, it's very cold. You would be crazy to undertake a military operation in that part of the world at this time of the year. Yes. So you think, despite Russia's long list of demands, simply taking that one step could just de-escalate the situation? I think that would be the best thing to do. So what is the next step? It does appear this stalemate between Russia and the US is continuing. What is the way forward? Is it more talks? Well, absolutely. I'm a great believer in Winston Churchill's phrase that jaw, jaw is better than war, war. So, um, and I would just hope that NATO could just agree to um, say, look, we will not accept Ukraine as a member and just take some of the heat out of the atmosphere. It's been a very dangerous week in that part of the world this week. Um, and this would take out some of the the heat from that situation. Because, in fact, many of the experts are still undecided as to what Russia's next step will be and still say there is a, a real threat that things could escalate. Oh, absolutely. And that's exactly what worries me, that you you end up with a situation of an accidental war. You're dealing with these um, young people who have got good weaponry, etc., easily a flashpoint, which then suddenly escalates. Well, let's hope that uh, that situation does de-escalate and further talks are more productive than this week, in fact. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.